Hello, and welcome to Vitals, where we explore the most pressing topics in healthcare and data. Today, we're getting a pulse on the critical role that healthcare systems play in unwinding the public health emergency and how they can help their patients navigate the redetermination process so that they can retain their Medicaid benefits. Joining us are Jesse Cardello, Director of Account Operations here at Arcadia, Josh Cabana, Director of Enterprise Partnerships at Arcadia, and Nina Zeltzer, Senior Manager here at Arcadia. With that, I want to get this conversation started. Uh, Jesse, I'm going to hand it over to you to uh, introduce yourself and then the rest of the panelists here. Great. Thanks, Mike. I'm really excited. Hi, my Boston friends, but excited that we have a nice swath of folks across the U.S. Um, so we're going to be covering a really important topic today, and it sounds like from the poll results, we're all feeling the same way. We've been seeing it in the news about the unwinding of the public health emergency um, that started because of COVID-19, and we're still learning a lot of facts of, you know, when this is going to start, how do health systems and payers need to um, react to this information and educate their patients. Um, so today I'm joined by my coworkers, uh, Josh and Nina. Um, Josh and Ina, can you give me an overview of who you are and how familiar you are with this uh, Medicaid unwinding redetermination? Josh, we'll start with you. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Jesse. Um, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I'm really excited to be here today to talk about this you know, really important topic. In my role as Director of Enterprise Partnerships at Arcadia, <clears throat> I get to regularly have conversations with our customers and others in the market who are thinking about the redetermination process and how they can be prepared and as successful as possible as they both execute the unwind and operationalize the ongoing process after that. And it's really all parts of the system, um, from the plans that manage Medicaid populations who are thinking really carefully about how to engage their beneficiaries and make sure that people don't inappropriately drop from their roles uh, to provider groups who are thinking about and making sure that their patients have continuity of care, uh, to the beneficiaries themselves, who understandably have a lot of questions and, and might be worried about their coverage. Great. Nina, we'll pass it over to you. Sure. And I think a uh, perfect uh, role to uh, kind of in parallel and coupled with what, what Josh does. I have the opportunity in my role as a senior manager, as, as someone who's worked uh, very closely with our outreach product for the last three years, which included sending messages at the beginning of the public health emergency to patients to make sure that their health systems were able to reach out to patients to let them know where they can get care in the public health emergency. And as we are unwinding this public health emergency, I get to work with my fellow colleagues like Josh and Jesse with their clients who are um, managing this process and figuring out what is the most appropriate way to reach out to their patients to let them know the information that they have currently and how to keep up to date with that information and, and be as direct with their patients as possible, which uh, luckily we have a outreach product that I've been working with and to work with those customers on their strategies to, to get that information out there. Thanks. Yeah, the outreach strategy is going to be really important. Um, so I'm excited to cover a lot of these tactics today and just um, the things that we've experienced with our, our um, folks in the industry on how we can answer those questions and make sure that we have like the most up-to-date information. So 
So what we've learned is 15 million people, including 6 million children, could lose their Medicaid benefits. Um, so the past few years, due to the public health emergency, folks did not need to re-enroll. Um, so now we're fearing that there's going to be quite a bit of chaos that's going to be caused when this unwinding starts. Um, we are still a little shaky on the dates. Um, this redetermination means that folks are going to need to reapply, um, but a lot of folks are uncertain um, if they're impacted or not. So my question to you guys, Nina, I'll start with you. Um, what are some of the challenges do you think the health systems are going to be faced as this unwinding starts? Yeah, I, you know, communication uh, overall, and I think large national communication has been that April 1st is is the time when um, payers and Medicaid coverage can stop, uh, can start unwinding. And that's just not set, set in stone. And as folks know on this call, you're from all different states and each Medicaid per state has their own guidelines. And there is just not enough deliberate information quite yet out there to really start working through strategies um, to be able to let patients know when what dates are really important to them. Um, and so uh, concerns about not having the right data and kind of not wanting to start a fire and that this is really scary, but how do we um, know when they need to start thinking about it? Yeah, that makes a ton of sense, Nina. Um, the way I think about it, you know, obviously folks on the phone know that maintaining coverage here is absolutely critical. Um, I like to think about sort of the things that are at, at risk, and it's those patterns that, you know, we've put in place, uh, all those drivers that contribute to success in population health management, right? So it's good preventative care, it's chronic disease management, it's access to emergency services, Really, I think the last thing that anybody wants is for a patient to show up for emergency services or show up for their preventative care visit or to an appointment where they're, they're coming in to manage their diabetes and hypertension mm -hmm. and to find out at that point that they don't have coverage. If you step back from that, there's, there's really two sides to this equation, right? The reality is that through this unwind process, some people might not continue to qualify for Medicare. Uh, uh, sorry, Medicaid, because their situation has changed. It's always better to understand that upfront and be able to redirect them towards other resources where they can get coverage so that they can maintain that continuity of care to make sure we're doing the right uh, foundational things for, for pop health. The ACI exchange is a great example, right? Where depending on the state, and I know we've got people from many different states in the audience today, there's gonna be lots of folks who don't directly qualify for Medicaid who are gonna have free or heavily subsidized options available uh, through the exchange. Now, those are the folks that don't qualify, but on the other side of the equation really is this idea of churn or people who are legitimately still eligible for Medicare who lose their coverage because mm -hmm. of this bureaucracy of enrollment verification or lack of awareness or social factors uh, that are barriers. And by some estimates, I've seen predictions that, you know, 7 million people could fall into that category. And what we know is that most people who lose Medicaid coverage often go without insurance for a period of time before hopefully they can get re-enrolled. And that's particularly risky for folks with chronic conditions or other complicating factors. 
That's a really great point. And I know that's something that we talked about quite a bit where this this fear that health systems are going to see this big gap in care. Um, patients are either unaware that they'll be impacted and do nothing and they show up for their visit and they don't have the coverage they need um, or they assume the worst, their coverage changes and they stop seeing their physician. They're not picking up pharmaceuticals. So um, these are the things that like that that ripple effect that we want to be really mindful of and make sure our health systems are um, sort of thinking through all these frequently asked questions or making sure they're they're getting ahead of it. Um, so, Josh, with that stat that you shared, what we learned was last year Medicaid enrollment grew to almost 100 million. So that's an increase of about 30 percent, close to 30 percent. Um, and so there's a lot of factors that include that, including the continuous enrollment. Um, so what we're looking at now is as this starts to wind down, we're thinking around April 1st, um, more specifically, what can health systems, provider networks and payers do um, to help their members and patients keep their coverage they need? And I know we talked about some of the, the programs that will be made available um, but what are the really tactical things? Um, I know an example we brought up was, you know, when patients call their PCP or show up for a visit and say, have you heard about this unwinding in the news? What, what can you tell me about it? Um, Josh, we'll, we'll start with you. Yeah, of course. I, I think that's a great point. So two things come to mind uh, off the top, and I, I think I'll expand on these quite a bit during our discussion today. The first is kind of an obvious one. It's be proactive. And by the way, the fact that you're all here today is a great testament to you and your organizations that you're thinking about and planning for this. Um, the other piece is it's a big lift, right? So think about how you can apply technology to help focus and streamline resources. It can feel like a really big problem. And what are ways that we can break this down into more manageable pieces and use technology to, to help out with that? Oh yeah, and part of that would be arming kind of office staff and providers with even some frequently asked questions documentation or just a, a couple of questions to uh, get this information out to uh, your providers and arm them with that information as, as best as possible. Um, we know um, an example of uh, the state of Oregon has kind of taken it upon themselves to to share that information, uh, I think really direct to patients uh, at first and then um, arm their health, other health plans and health systems with um, some next steps and questions and pieces and or, uh, websites to direct patients to so that they can um, start to be educated on, on this process. Yeah, that's great. I think the people who are going to get those questions the most are probably going to be the caregivers, um, the, the folks in the front office staff. So I think that's a great tip, making sure that whatever information we have to arm our um, health system workers so they can support our patients. So probably, I think, the most important question that will be asked today, and I'm wondering if our, um, our audience feels the same, but this is sort of an opinion poll, but We've been talking about the April 1st date, which was six days ago. So it's April 6th. Um, when should healthcare organizations start this outreach? Um, Nina, what are your thoughts? Yeah, um, honestly, really just as, as soon as possible. And even if you don't have all the information right away, at least to acknowledge that 
we know that this is going on and we're finding out information as, as quickly as we can and are up to date on it as soon as it's available. Um, that way, at least you can start the preparations and at least know to what, what to look for for new dates or new timelines and how to disseminate that information as it comes up and becomes readily applicable to, to your beneficiaries. Yeah, um, spot on. <clears throat> Look, I'll, I'll go back and kind of expand on my earlier point around being proactive. Getting the right information in front of beneficiaries early has a number of different benefits, right? First and probably most obvious, you can help relieve some of that anxiety that I'm sure beneficiaries are feeling. Um, I don't know about you, but I've gotten a, pretty much a flood of news stories, articles, podcasts uh, in recent weeks and months. There's a great article on the front page of the New York Times a couple of days ago. Lots of beneficiaries are seeing the same thing. And if we all work in healthcare and have questions about how this is going to work, it's going to be even more magnified for folks who don't live and breathe this every day. Right. So I think Getting out ahead of it can help with uh, some of the uh, anxiety on the beneficiary side and prime them for good engagement with the system. The second big benefit um, that I see is actually more on the system side. Uh, being proactive can really help with efficiency. There's no getting around it. This process is a pretty big lift. And I'm hearing a lot of concern about that in conversations that I'm having with Arcadia customers and just more broadly in the market. Mm -hmm. um, to be blunt, both sides are out of practice, right? So for beneficiaries, it's been quite a while since they've had to respond to a letter in the mail. And on the other side of the equations, the support systems, whether it's plans or health systems or social services, haven't done this in a while either. So what I'm hearing is people asking questions around, do we have the right staffing in place? Do we have the right processes in place? Are our call centers going to be overwhelmed? Our opinion at Arcadia is that technology can play a big part in pushing information out to beneficiaries to relieve some of that inbound burden that the system's definitely gonna experience. Um, in fact, a couple of weeks ago, I saw that uh, Google is making Medicaid information easier to find on Google search. So when you go on Google search, if you're searching for Medicaid or you're searching for a Medicaid related topic, they actually pop up on the search results links to to useful resources like um, renewal guidelines in the state that you're searching from, uh, contact information, links to logins to the state portal. That's really exciting stuff and I think effective, but that requires a patient to be engaged and go looking for it. Mm -hmm. um, we think we can actually take it a step further by pushing that same type of information out to the people who need it in a multi-channel way, in a way that's respectful of things like their language and other social factors, um, and sort of take control of that conversation early. That's great, Josh. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick on you again, because I think, so what we've identified is we really need to work with our, our state to make sure that we have the right tactical information. Um, there's plenty to read to get aware of the facts of the public health emergency, when it potentially could end, when this unwinding starts, when redetermination is where applications are reviewed and um, eligibility is determined. Um, so there's a lot of facts about that, but we really need to give patients directionally where to click, where to go, what information needs to be resubmitted, which is often financial information. It's not as easy just as a, you know, benign application. There's there's some financial um, literature that has to 
be part of that application process. Um, so what's your take on um, finding the right patients to contact? What's your opinion there? Like we mentioned, there's almost 100 million patients in this program today. Are we looking to find the right patients? What's the approach? Yeah, that's a great question. So in talking with customers, I think several of them are thinking about this as an ongoing operational activity, right? Mm -hmm. it, it can be easy to see uh, see the news and think of this as a one-time event. Um, it is a big lift, but it's something that will go on over time. So how can you make sure that the right people, the right process, the right technology are in place at the plans or at the providers or at the other healthcare delivery partners so that this becomes a baked in activity, right? Where you know some, where you know, maybe three months out from renewal for an individual, they get contacted to first let them know that they need to re-enroll. Just that information is a great starting spot. Um, and then you can make them aware of the process and the support that's available to them from the system to get them across the finish line. That beneficiary or patient relationship, I think is critical. And again, it's where technology can help do you have registries that identify renewal dates, right? If your goal is to reach out to them three months in advance of their particular um, renewal, do you have a registry that shows that, that has contact preferences, that has languages spoken to, to make this really as easy and effective as possible, both for the beneficiary, but also for your staff that's conducting the outreach? Yeah, that's a good approach. And I totally agree. I, th I think there'll be plenty of patients that may not fall into that um, identifying bucket that may still think they're at risk. So um, being really proactive about how broad we approach. Nina, what's what's your take on um, how we identify patients to get that information out? Yeah, I think uh jumping off of what Josh already shared with us as well is, is really taking that two-pronged approach where we know that we are in the process of unwinding. So if we can start with broad educational information first um, and just start to arm patients with the information to understand what this is and how it could affect you, and then also give states enough time to adapt the data that they send to health plans about redetermination dates. I know that's been um, something that some of our, our customers have been looking for or really would like to have in, in the future or, you know, as this, as Josh had said, kind of an ongoing operation that while this is starting now, it's going to continue forever <laughs> and part of kind of Medicaid uh, as comes with Medicaid territory. And how can we continue to build these registries and build out data in a way that helps organizations identify those right patients pretty easily and not go through this same rigmarole every single time. So really starting with that broad educational type of communication. Um, similarly, ideally in the right patient's language, uh, we've seen definitely higher text message delivery rates for patients in the preferred language than solely in, in English. Um, and the thought there is that at the point of care, if you are taking the time to document that preferred language, then um, you are taking the time to uh, kind of get the right contact information as well. So we have the most up-to-date contact information. Um, and then in kind of future states, 
if we can get those types of data that tells us when redetermination is coming up for specific patients, then we can really get into a flow of notifying them when they will have to kind of get through that process and really start to have a good operational workflow around redetermination for kind of future and uh, get it to a good state, uh, kind of steady state where you're just constantly letting patients know um, just to be aware and, and here are the resources to go uh, sign up and, and get more information about the process. So I think that the key takeaway here is it's not a one and done. We're, you know, the, the goal is not to send out a message. You probably saw it in the news. Here's your state uh, link. Um, this is going to be a rolling, Josh, as you said, an ongoing operational activity. We need to make sure that we're really grabbing those patients, keeping them engaged. So as we talk about communication, we covered um, how we can arm our front office staff, our even our PCPs, health systems, payers, to make sure that they have the right information specific to their state to make sure that these folks do not lose coverage. As you know, it would impact their ability to get medical care, ongoing medical care, pharmaceuticals. Um, so there's a big risk here. Um, the other form of communication that we have not talked about yet is text messages. And contrary to popular belief, text messages um, is a very popular, effective way to get in contact with patients. Um, so Nina, you're a resident expert. Uh, what kind of messages should providers um, be including in these text messages? Yeah, I think sometimes uh, recognizing that I think texting uh, patients specifically from large health institutions or health plans is, is semi a new concept. Uh, you know, mail mailers have been something that's been primarily used, and mm -hmm. um, you can kind of put as much as information as you want in, in a kind of letter to patients. But text messages have character limitations, usually around 160 characters, um, and so to be as succinct as possible in your wording and letting patients know, uh, kind of the uh, health system or provider name that the patient would feel most comfortable with, even if it's a large institution, patients are more familiar with their, their providers or their direct clinic. And to share information, you can even include a website in text messages so that you can have the, the bulk and the meat of the information on a website uh, instead of trying to type everything out in a, in a text uh, that ends up being an email or something you would send via mail anyways. Uh, so really being as as short and sweet as possible uh, to get the the message directly to patients. Yeah. Great. Josh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's spot on. Um, if you're wondering where to get started, um, it doesn't always have to be overly complicated, right? Informing folks of the need to enroll and just building the awareness that this is a process that they need to be engaged in can move the needle in a really dramatic way. Um, so, you know, I'd recommend, at least for an initial touch point, um, analysis by paralysis, if you're wondering what's put in it, just take a step back and realize that a big chunk of these beneficiaries actually don't understand what this process is or that they need to be engaged in it. And building awareness there can be a great first step. That's great. And I think overall, you know, talking about the different means of communication, um, we find as consumers of health and working with clients, health systems, payers, um, 
and even having family members, we're aware that patients often trust their providers, their healthcare providers, more than official documents. Um, so we've sort of covered the topic, I think, already with, you know, what can we arm um, those folks that are going to get the questions from their patients on what do I do? Am I impacted? Where do I go? How do I start? What's going to happen if I lose coverage? Um, so I think we covered that topic pretty well around frequently asked question sheets, cheat sheets for the office, making sure that, again, it's not a one and done. We're still, we're all still learning, you know, deadlines and when these things are going to happen. Does that sort of cover the gamut in terms of, you know, when, how we can help our health systems be armed with that information. Nine, I yeah, know. I, um, yeah, sorry. I was like, I could take that. Yeah, I, I think, uh, I think it's a great place to start. Um, I think really, um, we recognize the the burden of uh, kind of front office staff and providers, and even coming back to the new new normal after we are getting out of COVID and you know continuing to unwind the public health emergency, and anything that we can do to make it as seamless as possible is not arming front or point of care staff with a hundred other questions and resources that they need to share with their patients. Uh, even just having a, an FAQ sheet in the office ready to go, um, having a more, even if it's a, a state-based type of a website, I, I believe the state of California has a, a really well done website about Medicaid redetermination. Uh, even if we can easily direct patients to these websites for, for more information um, or kind of a, a pamphlet in the office so that um, patients can at least, you know, take that first step together, um, but also not overburden our <laughs> front staff and point of care staff as well. But uh, I think that's an excellent start and create other resources as more resources and more dates and specific information becomes more readily available. Yeah, and I, I love the idea of maybe um, when we're talking about text messages that have a broad reach, um, you know, mailers are great, but when we're thinking about the population and how transient it can be, uh, mailers isn't really the most effective way. doesn't mean that that strategy should be removed. Text messaging is probably the cheapest, quickest, um, blanket approach, especially when we're talking about the, the vast size of this program. Um, so just to, to narrow it down a little bit more, um, I know a very uh, popular term, um, SDOH, social determinants of health, um, folks that are food insecure, home insecure, um, have a variety of um, social economic issues that may be impacting them. Um, we really want to consider that population when it comes to redetermination um, and be mindful of the way we communicate and the way we do outreach. We sort of covered that. We're talking about text messages, which are effective. Um, Nina, what's your thoughts about um, this, this, you know, disproportionately affected population um, in Medicaid and how we need to reach out to them? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the best way to try and engage with those groups, again, is really leveraging the, the text messaging in preferred languages. Um, I know we talked about it a, a bit earlier, but, you know, I we hope and what we've seen is being able to reach out to patients in their preferred language. Does it low-hanging fruit get patients to be a little bit more engaged uh, in their health system? So if we can 
really have the most appropriate data and the language that are preferred that comes through in our data and get the messages translated um, to support patients in the languages that it, they would feel most comfortable with and working in their office staff with, um, we feel we can get them re-engaged with, with the system. And that's been really important across the board and previously many, many of our customers do send the same text message, even just around preventive care uh, for breast cancer screening in multiple languages to really bring those uh, those patients into the office and make them feel comfortable with that preferred language. In the last 20 years or so, I've probably had half a dozen different addresses, if I think back and can remember them. But my cell phone number has been consistent over that entire period of time. Right, So echoing uh, that as being a great channel, at least for initial outreach, uh, to build broad awareness. What I'm also hearing from our customers and sort of encouraging folks to think about is that this outreach is also an opportunity to build and strengthen relationships with the patient outside of the redetermination process. If you're reaching out to make them aware of the redetermination process, why not also think about the opportunity to engage them in care management if it's appropriate or schedule that next preventative visit that they're due for so that we're not only addressing the continuity of coverage, but also the continuity of care, right? This is a great touch point for folks that may not have frequent touch points with the system uh, to address redetermination, but also build that trusted relationship uh, between the, the delivery and provider uh, groups and, and the patients that they're seeing. I love that. So it's not just an information dump of like, there's a crisis and beware and click on this link and go to this website and best of luck. Like there can be an actual conversation to make sure like, while I have you, how are you? Do you, you know, when's the last time you saw your PCP? There can be a more well-rounded relationship that's built up. So I think that's so, so important. Um, and I really like that uh, you make, you give it a more humanistic um, approach. Um, okay. I have one more question for you guys. Um, so I know we've been, I think I've used the word crisis a few times. Um, we want to avoid that. Um, you know, this is scary news as it's coming across. We want to make sure no one is left out of the loop and that information is shared. Um, Josh, I'm going to start with you. What's the one thing you're telling clients um, who are thinking about helping their patients in their network um, to navigate this redetermination. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the biggest thing that I'm trying to communicate is if you have questions, beneficiaries definitely have questions. Start early, over-communicate, make it multi-channel, um, track and monitor the effectiveness of what you're doing, right? Because although this unwind feels like a single event, and in a lot of ways it is, Support mm -hmm. for renewals and redetermination is something that you want to bake into your operations moving forward. It may be flexing a muscle that you lost three years ago. It may be optimizing a process uh, moving forward based on what you learned through the rewind. Um, but bottom line is I think the one thing I'm telling folks is that if you have questions, beneficiaries definitely have questions. So it pays to get out in front of it. And I would echo very much to, to Josh as well on that, just to, to be, be mindful that, um, you are navigating this process as well with your patients and beneficiaries and um, really just working together to have that communication open and to share resources and pieces as, as soon as you know to your beneficiaries so that we can uh, 
keep building new processes to uh, maybe have this unwinding process be less scary in, in future iterations. Excellent. Well, I just thank you both so much. This has been a great conversation. I know we're working with not 100% of the facts, um, but I think we have a lot of tactical things that we've shared with the audience. Um, so speaking of the audience, I see that we have some questions that have been popping up. Um, so Mike, I'm going to pass it back to you. Yeah, we have a ton of questions coming in and I encourage all of you who are still with us to continue asking questions. This is kind of the best part of these sessions where we can actually have a conversation with those of you who have spent the time to be here with us today. The first question, um, this person is saying, just started looking at this issue and I would say that's probably typical, like a lot of people are, are worried about it now because it is coming um, to, to to, you know, like a, a head here. Um, they're looking for ways that will help them build their outreach lists. Do you all have any specific identifiers that you're helping clients dig into that might help uh, health systems or people who are looking to start this outreach process find the folks who are going to be affected? Is there is there a signal within the data that we can we can look at? I can start. Um, I, I think I think there's there's probably some primary information you have just based on eligibility dates. You can see when a patient has enrolled into the program and if they have sustained through that public health emergency, they're probably at risk. They haven't had to re-enroll that entire time. So you want to see folks that have um, jumped into the program probably a year before um, the emergency um, because they're probably going to be tasked um, with filling out that application. And like I mentioned before, that does include financial information. It's not sort of like a, a very vanilla form. It, it can be somewhat intense to be to have that information readily available to share. Um, it, there's some risk in um, trying to segment your list of who you're going to do some outreach to because you may miss someone that will be going through that redetermination. So um, it's sort of a cautious tale of being mindful of how you're going to segment um, your outreach. Certainly, and I'll just jump in there, certainly renewal date. Um, is a great marker if you have access to that information through eligibility feeds and, and can kind of sequence this out, um, that, that's great. The other way that I think about this though is we've talked a lot about text messaging today. That can be a really sort of low cost scalable way to um, drive awareness and get some basic information into the hands of uh, these beneficiaries. It's probably not the last step of engagement that we'll need. Right. So as you're thinking about steps beyond text messaging, do we have folks at a call center that are outreaching? Are we engaging with community organizations that have touch points with these individuals? Um, you may want to think about segmenting them even further. Um, and one way to think about that is who is most at risk? Everybody is at risk if they use, lose coverage. But if you have multiple chronic conditions, if you have chronic conditions that aren't in control or not well managed, those might be candidates to have specifically targeted, focused outreach and engagement efforts after a broad awareness campaign through things like SMS text. Yeah, and to, to add on to that as well, as, as Jesse had said, to leverage even folks with, um, you know, starting with eligibility data as well. And uh, we also like to look, especially at the beginning here, looking at this as a population health type of focused 
group. So even though maybe you're not segmenting specifically by uh, Josh is at high risk patients initially, you're really trying to engage your population and, and support this as a population health kind of initiative. And as those pieces come through with um, the specific dates that patients can um, hopefully that we're getting that data for, for patients who are, when their redetermined dates would be coming up, then we can start focusing on those groups and, and work around other strategies to uh, also focus on, on patients who maybe are at, more at risk due to their uh, variety of chronic conditions. One more thought there. Everyone's data environment looks different, right? Um, one of the nice things about Arcadia is that we combine claims information and eligibility information with clinical information. So another way you could think about this is um, looking at the last appointment that someone's had. When is the last time that they've engaged with the system? Have they been in an office recently where they might have gotten a message from a provider uh, that redetermination is something they need to think about? or? Does it look like they haven't been in for, for any interactions with the systems in the last two years? That might be another way to segment here. Uh, people that aren't engaged with the system generally probably aren't, don't have the same level of awareness and engagement with the redetermination process. So one, one more data point you can think about as you go from a strategy of broad awareness building to targeted outreach and engagement for folks that are at higher risk. Fantastic. We've got a ton of questions rolling in right now, um, so keep them coming. Um, there is another question in here that I think is tangentially related to this. We're talking about being proactive by sending out text message campaigns, trying to collect that information about eligibility from folks and looking at the data if you have that data. There's another question here about um, training programs that you mentioned earlier, Nina. And also another question about how folks can arm their providers with information so that they can have really good discussions if people are coming in for other services. And maybe that's an opportunity to talk with redetermination. So there's the technology arm, but then there's also this human engagement side of things, this patient engagement side of things. Nina, can you talk a little bit more about the training programs that you mentioned, maybe some specific examples of how uh, you know, folks can 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 put put those in action, but then also um, just broadly, all of you maybe have some ideas around patient engagement as well. Sure, um, I can think of uh, kind of an example in uh, really honestly one of our sort of pilot um, practices who have really been. Uh, ahead of redetermination and it's been even I think really in like late 2020 was already talking about redetermination as something that was really a top of mind of an organization in, in Massachusetts and they work with their kind of leaders of individual community health centers to engage with them and making sure that they have what they need to engage with their population. So whether it is working with Arcadia to help pick up the, the lift with their patients because their staff is, is too busy to do that low hanging fruit and send out a text message to their patients and beneficiaries. And, or if there is a community health center that already is, is doing something else, but they need a little bit more support elsewhere to be able to arm them with, with that additional support uh, and then kind of replicate those trainings and those pieces across other community health centers who maybe aren't as readily involved or readily taking action um, on this process as, as is. When I think about this, I think about 
um, where is the trust with a patient? And oftentimes uh, there's, there's a tighter relationship or more trust with the providers compared to the plans, just reality. Uh, as patients spend more time in the office, in the uh, clinics than, than interacting with the plans, generally speaking. I know that staffing is different across all different uh, types of clinics, but if clinics are lucky enough to have patient navigators or care coordinators, having someone that the patient's familiar with that can help them navigate, you know, confusing re renewal forms or a confusing process uh, can be really effective. So I'd encourage folks to think about where are the most effective places for the touch points to be coming from? Um, I think the best strategy is a multi-channel and sort of omni-channel approach, uh, but thinking about where different pieces of information are most effective when, when they come from different places. Fantastic. Uh, the next question, I think this one is a little bit for our audience. So if you all who are still tuned in have ideas around this, we'd love to hear them, drop them in as comments. How important is the impact of losing your benefits to your strategy for how early and tactical options um, you would use? And Jesse, Josh, you all are talking with clients who are thinking about this right now. Um, how, Im how important is the impact to patient populations uh, for the business strategy of folks that you're working with? Yeah, of course. Uh, I can jump in there, Jesse. So I think the the way I think about this is actually fairly similar to, to risk adjustment. So it's it's making sure that you keep the right populations and the right uh, the right revenues into the business to be able to provide the, the care that the patient populations need. If you go through a, a situation like churn, where people who legitimately qualify for Medicaid benefits drop from your role artificially, Right, and in a preventable way, uh, just because they're confused about navigating the process, that's really going to uh, impact not only the patient's continuity of care, but also the business on the plan side. And is it isn't going to set you up to deliver the benefits that the patients need once they get re-enrolled? Yeah, Jesse, do you have anything to add to that? Um. Yeah, I think. I think Josh hit it right on the head. I mean, we have patients that are going to be directing their inquiries with their um, their health systems, potentially even calling their their payers, um, you know, reaching out to family members. So I think it's really important that we have um, different channels of communication that's going out. Some of it's going to be informative. Some of it's going to be tactical. Um, and then taking it a step further with our health systems um, and our clinics and our practices to make sure that if they are encountering um, a patient that does need to re-enroll, making sure that they have the right resources. Um, you know, if they need help with their phone to start that application or if they need a little guidance, um, we just it's really important that we all get educated. We owe it to um, our fellow humans to make sure that we have the right information to share so they are armed with how to reapply when they need to do it, um, staying on top of that communication, checking in with them. It's it's a pretty big lift. Um, this is healthcare. It's It's not easy. It's not linear. Um, so it's going to require, as I mentioned before, um, this is not a one and done. This is we're going to be learning more information and we really need to spread that that 
to everyone we know, whether they're Medicaid or not, so they can share that information with their neighbors and family and and uh, friends. Great. This next question is is really fantastic, and you 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 may not have specific ideas around it, but I know we have a lot of clients who are connecting patients with community resources and working in tandem with their community resources. Um, so maybe you all have some stories that you can share for where this has occurred. But this question is, what's the best way to get patients connected with other resources if they do happen to lose eligibility? Maybe they miss the redetermination deadline. How, how have you seen other clients of ours connect patients with those, those resources that they need? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I uh, I do a lot of work in California, which has kind of a wealth of uh, social resources that are adjacent to, but kind of outside the healthcare delivery system. Um, and the state of California broadly is doing a lot of interesting thinking about how to connect Medicaid beneficiaries with those services that we know you, you know aren't an appointment in a doctor's office, but could be things like. Um, like WIC or uh, housing support or other uh, other social resources that are available within the state to populations that need them and understand actually how that impacts their, their health. Uh, so, you know, healthcare is broader than, than the delivery system in a lot of ways. And um, customers that I'm speaking with are starting to think about how do we identify the, uh, the right tranche of patients to do needs assessments on and make sure that they're connected with, with those social services. So I'd recommend, um, you know, taking, taking into account the data, um, the data that you have from, from clinical sources, but also social determinants data that you have and figuring out ways to marry those together so that we're looking at benefits holistically um, across both the delivery system and the social services uh, that are available to the population. And to tack on to that, we have um, we have worked really closely with a, a health plan in the state of Washington who who does some similar work and uh, letting uh, beneficiaries know that you know the the health insurance piece is is not the only thing that's related to healthcare and let uh, patients know where to get cell phones. You know, we want to text patients, but if they don't have a cell phone, we we cannot text them. So to provide those opportunities to receive a cell phone as part of this health plan and um, to receive uh, food or housing if there are some housing insecurities and, and to be able to to support that as well. And I think one way to even, you know, the question of asking if, if a patient has missed the deadline and they need to be rehooked up with that information, maybe setting up some central call centers for patients to call directly. I, uh, you know, as we talked about the, uh, um, the burden of administrative and front desk staff sometimes is, is really a lot. And to add another thing to uh, the point of care and the, another piece of the list that, that providers need to also do for their patients, um, if there are even flyers within urgent care or in the EDs or at doctor's offices that has those resource to a website of specific health plans for here are the other resources that we can help you with or with the direct phone number to uh, a central call center so that if patients do have questions about, oh, I went to the doctor and I've lost my coverage, how do I make sure I can get that back? That there are spaces that um, is readily available in, uh, in the patient's community to make sure they know where to get that access again. 
This next question I really like because this has been knocking around in the back of my head of like, isn't this the state's burden? This person's asking, won't Medicaid and uh, Medicaid Advantage plans be reaching, uh, providing outreach and assistance to members who are being unenrolled? Like, don't they have a system already? Like, why is this coming down to the, the health systems and payers? Why, why does this become um, the responsibility of everyone, I guess? I can I take mean, a I, first pass. Yeah, yeah please. Yeah, I, 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 I'll take a first pass at that. I think it completely depends on the state. We know of a couple of states who are uh, who are taking that on and are at least doing that initial communication to beneficiaries of um, of when they are going to need to re-enroll or the idea that they are going to need to re-enroll. But I, I think it completely, unfortunately, depends on the state. So we, we know a few who are taking that on, but um, not every state is doing so. Yeah, and I, I can add to that too, because I, I recently talked with uh, another Arcadian, Anna Basovich, who wrote a newsletter recently. It's actually linked in the related content section. And I, and I vaguely remember her saying that I think they're only required to reach out twice by mail. Like that's the bare minimum. And so states that are doing the bare minimum, it's like that could be easily missed, especially when we go back to thinking about social determinants of health and folks who are maybe housing insecure. You know, you send it, you send two pieces of mail to the address that this person doesn't live at anymore. They're going to not know that that they're losing their benefits and they probably really need their benefits. So um, yeah, it's like an unfortunate thing that this becomes everybody's burden, but um, it, it's important to remind ourselves why we're doing it. And I think it sort of covers the topic we were discussing about like, who do you identify to start this outreach with? And there's definitely um, an approach when you're looking at eligibility and those that are at higher risk, comorbidities, um, but I think the same goes for us all making sure we are good stewards to our neighbors and friends and um, making sure that we also have that information. Because in the event, Mike, as you mentioned, if someone doesn't receive that that mailer that comes through, they may be like, hmm, I haven't heard anything, so I'm good. Um, we can't just we can't just assume that someone else is going to do this work. Um, and and um, Nina said something that's really so true is that. Um, this will be a really good lesson to make sure that our clinics and our practices and health systems have this information just normally um, on how we can make sure, not just for this reapplication um, and to be prepared to make sure your coverage doesn't lapse, um, but what other resources are outside of this clinic that you're patients can rely on, even if it has nothing to do with Medicaid. Um, there's a lot of other resources. And I think that information um, is really handy to have when you're interacting with patients. And it starts, I mean, the conversation can start today. There may be someone in their doctor's office today. They can see that they're Medicaid. And this is the, this is the day to say, I'm wondering, have you seen what's been going on in the news? Start that conversation. Don't wait to be asked. So I think there's like so many different avenues in which um, we can make sure that people are informed. The other thing that I'd encourage people to think about is e even if um, even if the state process was 100 percent effective without the involvement of, of the health system, I think we're missing a big opportunity, right? And that's to build the relationship with the patient, even outside of this redetermination process. Mm -hmm. 
So while we're reaching out to patients as providers or as MCOs, it's also a great time, um, like I mentioned earlier, to say, hey, and we also noticed that you haven't been in for your annual wellness visit yet. Can we help you get that scheduled? Or we, we've seen that you haven't come in for your breast cancer screen. L let us help you figure out how to get that scheduled or connect them with social services that aren't directly related to redetermination. But while you've got them engaged is a great time to continue to build that relationship. Josh, I'll add on to that as well. I think the primary sort of texting templates that we've been floating across our customers who have wanted to work with us on redetermination, um, kind of outreach messaging has been a bit more of a um, combined kind of texting template that is like, you know, redetermination is a thing, but also like, you know, it's important so that we can continue your care, such as having an annual wellness visit and or your cancer screenings to, to make sure that it, you know, it isn't just business because you need to re-enroll for your eligibility, but we care about your care as well. Yeah, I think we have time for one more question. Um, I'm getting lost in all the questions that, that came in. So thank you for those of you who have submitted questions. We'll try to go back and answer the ones that we didn't um, live today. Uh, but Jesse, I saw another one in here that was interesting about um, design of technology and user experience. And this is something you and I have talked about in the past. Yeah. And I think everybody on this on this call today is passionate about this topic. So yeah. um, how, how does how does technology, the design of technology, user experience go into making sure that um, this process is smooth and that communication is um, multi-channel and omni-channel? Uh, can, yeah. can you all kind of share your final thoughts on that before we wrap up? Yeah, I'd be happy to start. I made a very bold statement on our last webinar that I stand by that good design will save healthcare. And I stand by that. And I think that um, that includes something that Nina said. Sorry, Nina, if I'm stealing your soundbite, but um, keep it short and sweet. There's things that people can do. There's websites that they need to go to. Um, we can start to inform our staff and ourselves by going to your state website, start there. Um, maybe their design isn't great, um, but they'll have the information that you need. And that's where you're going to get your sound bites. That's where you're going to get like the, the, the things that people need to understand to now. So um, start there with your communication and keep it digestible. I'd say, <clears throat> as I think about this, it, it's really important as you think about design to meet people where they are. Right? We know that mailers aren't, aren't ideal for reasons that we, we've covered today. So thinking about the right channels, uh, the right trusted relationships, and the right places in the community to engage. Yeah, and I, Jesse did steal my soundbite, but I will add on to it in, in the notion as well, but more of a website. We've, we've seen... We've seen it before with the start of the public health emergency to adapt websites to bring the most pertinent information to the front. Uh, and so to, to keep that in mind and, and to meet your patients where they are so that they, they can easily access that information or have the right phone number readily available so that we're at least doing some of the work on their behalf and not giving patients 15 extra steps to do, considering they're going to have to re-enroll in this process anyways, which could be a tumultuous process and getting the right financial information. And it's not just your regular BuzzFeed kind of survey questions, but something that becomes uh, a little bit more thought to, to go into filling out this application. 
can we make the application easier by making it feel like a BuzzFeed uh, survey? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> What's your favorite color? Yeah. All right. on, on that note, this was fantastic. Nina, Josh, Jesse, this has been so interesting, so insightful. Really appreciate uh, your expertise on this. And I also want to thank, I know I've I've thanked everyone uh, who attended today multiple times throughout the session, but I just want to reiterate how important it is for all of us to come together as a community, especially on issues like this. We really appreciate, especially those of you who have stuck it out to the very end, participated, submitted questions, um, shared your own thoughts. It's really important to continue these discussions. And we encourage you to uh, meet us live at Hims in a couple of weeks. We're going to be booth 152. So come continue this conversation with us there if you're going to be there. If not, we're also going to have a digital trends in healthcare session, another one of these webinars in a month. That's going to be with our CMO, Dr. Rich, uh, as well as a participant who has been, uh, we haven't revealed who it is yet, but she's been on some of these uh, webinars as an attendee. Um, in the past. So if you have ideas, we'd love to hear them and have you on in the future as well. The recording for this session is going to be available shortly. It's going to be sent via email. Um, again, there's related content over on the side there that you can check out, newsletter, product information, and some additional resources. Uh, we're really excited to see you next time. Thank you again for attending and have a great afternoon.